one of those passages in the Bible that regardless of your background with the church or Christianity, you've probably heard about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I've read it or studied it tons of times in my life, but every time that I kind of do another deep dive into it, I see more that's there. And so there's so much more going on in this passage than meets the eye. So the first paragraph on your page, verse 25 to 29, that's the real life conversation or interaction between Jesus and this quote-unquote expert in the law. And then uh, that provokes the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus then shares afterwards. Real quick, just let's look at some of the characters in this. This so-called expert in the law, is, it, this guy's not a soft-hearted disciple asking for help. He's a hard-hearted critic setting a trap. So he's trying to see if Jesus' answers line up with the Jewish law or if his answers break it, because if they break it, he's a heretic and he can kind of get Jesus dealt with and taken care of. So this guy, very cleverly, he camouflages his trap inside of a seemingly vulnerable personal question. It'd be like if you went to your pastor, you know, seeking help or or counseling or advice in a really hard situation, and you knew that he's going to be like pricked with compassion for you, but you've got your phone on record, and you're trying to catch him so that you can go kind of put that online and prove that he's the heretic you thought he was. That's what's going on. So this guy asked this vulnerable question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you tell me. You're the expert. And he says, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? So the guy, probably a little bit flustered that now the question has been put back on him, he answers, well, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bingo, just go do that. You'll be fine. Keep the law, keep the whole law and you'll live. Now, a little side note, Jesus always tends to respond this way when he's dealing with a hard-hearted or self-righteous person who's trying to kind of earn God's love, perform their way um, to God's grace. Uh, He did it with the rich young ruler. He did it with Nicodemus. He does it with the Pharisees. And he does it with this Pharisee, this expert in the law. He's he's having these people uh, take a sip of their own medicine so that he can dismantle their hopes in saving themselves or that they're a good enough person uh, that they have a leg up. They impress God with their goodness. But every time these people have a sip of their own medicine, they leave sad or confused or angry. Nicodemus left sad and confused. The rich young ruler left sad and dejected. This Jewish expert has got to be deflated. They don't like the medicine that they're, they themselves are trying to live by and that they're asking everybody else to live by. So what they have to do, if you want to live your life in that kind of a way, if you want to try to be such a good person that you don't actually need a merciful Savior who rescues you from you, if you want to try to do it yourself, you have to dilute 
the law. You have to lower the bar, the standard of the law, so much so that you can get over it and succeed at it and achieve and measure up. It's like this. It's like thinking that you're an amazing basketball player because you lowered the rim to like eight feet and you can dunk on it and you make every shot and you think, I'm, an, I'm amazing at basketball. No, you lowered the rim, you lowered it so far down that you could, you, could success, you, could, you could succeed. But Jesus doesn't lower the bar, he raises it. And so this guy's getting squirmy and a little bit uncomfortable. Verse 29, seeking to justify himself so that's where we see the, the, the mixed motivations that are going on in his heart. That's where we see the, this impulse to, to try to just be such a good person uh, that he would inherit eternal life. Um, seeking to justify himself, the guy asks, well, then, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? Here's what he's doing. He's trying to dramatically shrink the population of people that he's actually being called to love as himself. He just answered the question, what's the purpose of the law? Love the Lord your God and love my neighbor as myself. So that's a high call. That's, that, that's the basketball rim at 10 feet. And he's saying, but who actually is my neighbor? He's trying to shrink the number of people that he's actually being called to serve and love. He's saying, can my neighbor, and ask yourself, is, is this impulse in your heart too? He's saying, is my neighbor, can my neighbor just be my friends, my close friends? People who are awesome and have an awesome personality and are easy to be around, can those just be my neighbors? Can it just be cool people? Can it just be people just like me culturally or racially or ethnically? He wants to hold on to this impoverished, narcissistic, self-serving definition of love that, that he has lived inside of his entire life up to this conversation. So Jesus kind of puts together a story and um, it's important to realize this. Jesus is casting this expert in the law, this Jewish guy, he's casting him not in the hero role of this parable that he's, that he's making up to help this guy and, and to teach us. He's casting this Jewish guy in the role of the victim in the story. How do we know that? He says that this guy who ends up getting beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, he was going down from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho. Who lives in Jerusalem? The Jews lived in Jerusalem. So he's saying, hey, you know, there's a guy just like you, a an expert in the law just like you, and he was leaving Jerusalem. He had business in Jericho that he was going down there to do. And Jesus tells this story where this guy is in the place of need. This guy is in the place of mercy. This guy cannot help himself, and he has no hope apart from another person seeing him, moving towards him in love, and restoring him. And he says at the end of the story, expert in the law, who do you think was a neighbor to you in this story, to the beat up guy? Who was a neighbor? And this expert in the law, maybe a few tiny light bulbs are beginning to go off because now he's, he's, his answer is the one who had mercy on him. Or because he's being cast in the victim role, the one who had mercy on me. That's who was a neighbor to me in this story. So Jesus says, yes, you're right. So go and do likewise. He flips it back on this guy. Go and do likewise. 
when you're in a moment of need where you have no way out except mercy, you're able to realize what mercy feels like. You know what you need. It's very clarifying to be in a place of desperation. That's what teaches you what mercy is. Someone who sees you in that and didn't keep walking past, but they helped you. They financed your recovery. They were in it with you and helped get you out. He's saying desperation is very clarifying. It helps you actually understand what mercy is. And so Jesus says, okay, now you go be the merciful one. When you see other people in the pit of helplessness and hopelessness, you be the merciful one. So that's a little bit of what's going on in the story. But I wanted to, this is a parable. It's a teaching tool that Jesus has given for this guy and the people within earshot, but it's recorded for us. Uh, And so it's asking to be modernized and brought into your present experience in our our present lives. So I I was like thinking about that. Well, let's try to pull this into our context uh, at UGA, at UNG, and RUF. Here's, Here's, if we retooled some of the details to put it in a present context, here's what it might sound like. Imagine this. You know, Jesus casts you, like you as an individual, Jesus casts you in the role of the desperate person, the person who needs help. You're the needy one. And then so let's say to you RUF veterans, to anybody for whom this was an easy room to walk into tonight, you did not have to kind of sit in your car and pray up the courage to walk into this room and to know I don't know many people in the room. Um, For those of you just kind of on autopilot walked into the room tonight, you know your friends are here. It's a very easy room, very familiar and comfortable to be in. Jesus says, now imagine that you are the new freshman or the new transfer in the room tonight. You've been trying to get up the nerve to come to RUF for the past six weeks. You sat in your car praying before you got the courage to walk in. You scanned the room when those metal doors opened and you didn't recognize a single face. Now, good news, there was a senior. A senior guy looked over at you and saw you, but he immediately averted his eyes back to his friends that he was talking to. But it's okay because another girl, who she seemed to know everybody. You saw her floating around the room talking to everybody. She walked up towards you and she said, hey. But she kept walking by. And other than saying, hey, how are you? Never stopped walking, never engaged you any further than that. But then he says, but then there was another freshman and you could tell in their face they were a little nervous that they looked new, that they didn't know many people. But they walked up to you and they talked to you and they asked about you. And because they thought it would help you feel not as alone, they told you about their first night here and how that was a little scary too and how they still don't know too many people. And then they invited you to come and sit with them. And then they told you about their freshman fellowship prayer group that meets Tuesday nights. You should come. You can walk over with me. And then next week, they texted you Wednesday afternoon and said, hey, I bet it would help to have someone to walk in with. Why don't we go together? And then Jesus asks you, who was a neighbor? Who was a friend to you when you were the needy one, when you were the socially poor one? And you would say, the freshman. And Jesus would say, you got it. 
Go and do likewise. Go and be that kind of friend for others now. Now, you remember when I said there's more going on in this passage than meets the eye? There's, some other, there's something else kind of big going on a little bit under the surface here. That if you look at the passage, you can see Jesus is, is turning this guy's question around on him. The, the lawyer, the, the Jewish expert in the law, his question is, well, who is my neighbor? He's trying to shrink the population of people that he's going to call to love. But Jesus, at the end of the parable, doesn't ever answer the question, who, like, here's a list of the people that you need to be nice to, pay attention to, and help out, be on the lookout for. And then these people you don't need to really worry about. He doesn't, he doesn't answer that question. He flips the question, and he says, who is a neighbor to you? And then he says, you're the neighbor. So the question, if I could bring it back down to earth and, and say, the question that God would have you preoccupied with is not, who are my friends going to be? The question that God would have you preoccupied with, that, that grace itself frees you to become preoccupied with, is this. Who can I be a friend to? Not who's my neighbor, but who do I get to be a neighbor to? Do you see the difference? One centers you and looks around every room you go into. The first thought in your mind is, who's going to come up and talk to me? Who's going to include me? Who's going to invite me? Who's going to see me? Who's going to talk to me? Who's going to give me attention? And I'm not saying... We're made to be loved, not just to love. So those are not inherently bad desires to want to be cared for and loved. God wants you to be cared for and loved. God loves you and cares for you. But when we are kind of walk around our lives at the center in every group of people that we walk into, we're like, what can you do for me? Do you see, do you see what, that, what that brings about, the fruits that that bears? Do you see how it's a me-centered attitude? Versus, Jesus flips that around and he says, when you walk into a room or a new group of people, large group or freshman fellowship or your house tonight or your fraternity or your hall, who can I be a neighbor to? Who do I get to be a friend to? Who needs my help? That's the flip that's going on here. One posture is passive. It's relational defense. It's just sit here and waiting for relationship to happen to me. The other is active. It's relational offense. It's on the move. One is self-serving. The other is self-giving. One actually leaves you spiraling into deeper isolation and loneliness because it's always on your mind. Uh, that, that girl didn't come up and say hey to me. That guy looked at me, but he walked away. It, it spirals you more into a sense of loneliness. The other sends you spiraling out towards others in love. Whether you know them really well or not, uh, you still get to go up and talk to them because you're asking the question, how could I be a friend to them? So look, maybe now we have talked a little bit more about what's on the surface of this passage and a few of the things that are going on beneath the surface in the passage. But I think we need to more practically define some of this so that we know how to, quote unquote, go and do likewise, as Jesus says at the end of the parable. We need to see how Jesus, by his grace, makes us this kind of friend to other people. So that's what we're going to spend the, the, the rest of our time talking about. Practical questions. 
What makes someone your neighbor? What makes someone your neighbor? Is it compatibility? Y'all click? Is it chemistry? Is it how much you share in common? Man, we're really into the same things. I can see a future with you. We're going to get along. No. I mean, we'll talk about those things in, in three weeks when we talk about best friendships, kind of soul friendships. We'll talk about that. That is legitimate. But that's not what makes someone your neighbor. What makes someone your neighbor is not compatibility, chemistry, clicking, or what you have in common. It's circumstance. Circumstance. Uh, I'm going to use a word that I don't really believe exists, but coincidence, coincidence. God is not random. He's not coincidental. He's sovereign. Every detail he's in control of, but, but that word gains traction in our minds. What makes someone your neighbor is coincidence. Someone happens to be in the same place at the same time with you, and they need you. There's an obvious need that they have that you see. It's this, in this parable, it's a man that God had literally dumped in the path of these people on their commute. The, the guy was almost blocking their way. Same place, same time. Verse 24, the priest happened to be going down the same road. Who is your neighbor? People who are traveling on the same roads. People that you see. We're not talking about is, is Jesus saying that 35,000 people on campus are your neighbor. He's boiling it down very practically, and he's saying the people at UGA who are traveling the same paths as you day in and day out. They're in this, verse 32, the Levite, when he came to the same place the wounded man was. So people who are at the same place at the same time with obvious needs and need your help. In other words, these are people who are hard to miss if you're, if you have this mentality and this paradigm of who can I be, who can I be a friend to? Who can I help? Who needs my mercy that I'm crossing paths with repeatedly? So think about people in your capstone project. Think about the other barista that you keep getting scheduled with, even if you don't click with her. Think about the people in your fall conference breakout group, the three of those people that you don't know. Think about your literal next door neighbors. Think about your hallmates. 125 of y'all are serving and furthering the mission of RUF on this campus on ministry teams. 125 of you. Do you know the other people on your ministry team? They're your neighbors. Uh, people that God keeps repeatedly crossing your path with, those are the prime targets that Jesus is talking about. This is so helpful. He really boils it down. Have you ever heard of what compassion fatigue is or activism fatigue? It's when you are just bombarded with need, need, need. There was an earthquake in Morocco, a flood in Libya, a war in Israel, in, in, in Gaza, in Ukraine, in Russia, and there's a homelessness crisis and inflation, and you're just like, what am I supposed to do with all of this? So we throw in the towel, fatigued with how much need is being thrown in front of our faces and the fact that we can't do anything about it. So before we even you know, move towards those needs, we're just like, I'm overwhelmed. I'm paralyzed. My knees have buckled. 
And Jesus, this is why this is so helpful, lest you think, well, how am I supposed to love 35,000 people? Jesus says, no, no, no. Uh, There's other people that I'm crossing with their paths, but you know who's not in your path at the same place at the same time with these people? Uh, Moroccans aren't, Libyans aren't, Ukrainians aren't, homeless people in other cities across the country aren't, but you are. They're your neighbors. Those are your opportunities to see need and to, with compassion and love, uh, move towards it the same way Jesus, who has seen your need, has befriended you, moved towards you. There's two quotes I wanted to share with you just because they drive this point home, and I'll, I'll move on. But Christopher Watkin wrote a book called Biblical Critical Theory. It's kind of the big rage now with a lot of pastors. But he said, he defined neighbor this way. My neighbor is a circumstantial intrusion into my carefully curated networks of friends, family, coworkers. It's, they're an anomaly not on my list of quote-unquote friends. They're a subversive shuffling of the relational cards. So my neighbor may turn out to be the one whom I least expect. G.K. Chesterton drove it even further home. He said, we choose our friends, we choose our enemies, but God chooses our neighbor. Again, it's random strangers, or maybe they're just acquaintances. You know their name, you see them often, but you keep showing up in the same place at the same time. And I'm asking the question, I think Jesus is asking the question, are you seeing them? Are you seeing obvious needs. Not all of them are going to have obvious needs. We're not talking about go to a a deep dive therapy session to excavate the entire past of everyone you bump into to see if there's needs buried. We're talking obvious presenting needs. Those are the people that God would have you see and represent him as the true neighbor, as a lover of those in need, as a merciful, generous God who stops and looks and kneels down and helps and lifts and cares for and restores to fullness. You get to be his ambassador in real life places of need with real life people who don't have any other you in their life. So look, we've talked about hopefully more practically what makes someone your neighbor. It's not chemistry, not clicking, but circumstance and coincidence. So what's involved? What does loving your neighbor look like? Um, Well, it looks like seeing. It begins with seeing, but it never stops with seeing. Listen, all three of the people who passed this man by saw him. So that doesn't seem to be the problem. Uh, In other words, there's probably people that you can think of this week, if you roll the videotape back in your mind, kind of people who fit the definition of neighbor and you've seen needs of them. You've been made aware of needs that they have, ways that you could help. Uh, That's not so much the problem. The priest saw the man, and the text says that. The Levite saw the man, and the text says that. The Samaritan saw the man, but he didn't just see him. He allowed this random man, this neighbor, to become a higher priority for him than whoever he was on his way to go meet in Jericho, wherever he was going, sorry, wherever he was going. Now, listen, 
the Samaritan had just as important things on his to-do list and on his schedule as the priest and the Levite who probably rationalized and said, I don't have time for this guy. This is going to be, this is going to, man, I got, I got three more things to do. I got this phone call to be on. I've got this test to study for. If I stop and help this guy, it's going to ruin my plans. The Samaritan, it's not like the Samaritan is unemployed and just had nothing to do. We know he had something to do because he takes this man to the inn and he pays the guy and he says, hey, look, I've got to go, but here's enough money to get this guy back on his feet. When next time I come through, I'll pay whatever difference it took to help him out. So the Samaritan had priorities and schedules and to-do items as well. He allowed this man to become a higher priority for him than his to-do list and his schedule. And that's what's different about the Samaritan's response. He didn't just see the man like, you know, it registered with his optic nerve. He saw this man as his first-person possessive pronoun, as his neighbor, his responsibility, his opportunity. And that, out of that came pity and nearness and care. And that's what mercy is called. Mercy is seeing, seeing someone in need and saying, I'll take responsibility for the needs of this person even though they don't deserve it. So the man uses the meager resources that he has on hand, some oil that he puts on the man's skin some money that he has in his money purse, and he uses what he has on hand, what resources he has, to get this man back on his feet as best best he can. Here's the takeaway for you. This man, he doesn't have everything. He's not a surgeon. He's not an ER doctor. He, he's, I don't know what he was, a businessman or something, but he uses whatever resources that he had And he used that as a tool to help this man and to be merciful. In other words, he saw that he had agency. He could make a difference, even if it was small. Do you believe that you have agency? Do you believe that you can make a difference? Some of you do. Many of you don't. And the reason that you don't see or that we don't move towards the needs of others is we think, oh, what difference is it going to make? I can't, who am I? I can't, you can. Here's what we're talking about. It's not just, you know, uh, victims of violence that Jesus is calling us to be a neighbor to uh, or people who are poor like this man left for dead in the streets. Poverty happens in any arena of life, not just financial or health. I've already given you some examples tonight of the socially poor, the lonely, the disconnected. Do you believe that you, whether you're new or old, whether you know people in the room tonight or not, do you believe that you have um, social agency and ability to be merciful and help people in social poverty? You have feet. You have a smile. You have a phone. You have a mouth. You can say, hey, I'm new too. What's your name? Do you believe that you have what you need to take responsibility for a person whose path you cross? You have academic resources. 
Some of you are A students. Many of you are A students. You have an ability to help your friends in class who, who you keep sitting next to or who have told you how bad they did on the last test. They told you the, the grade that they got. You have an ability to be merciful to them in their, in their need. To say, hey, why don't I give you a few tips? Or I found this resource on YouTube that really made sense of the professor. I can't understand him either. Or here's a better way to study. Or we should study together for the next test. What about, uh, what about spiritual poverty? Do you believe, Christian, that you have agency, that, that God will work through you in the lives of your friends? You know, I think one of the greatest lies the devil has convinced this generation of, and I'll include mine too, is convincing you nobody wants to hear about Jesus. Come on. I mean, it's 2023. This is a post-Christian America. No, people are just going to think, oh, you're one of those religious people. Don't bring it up. Be polite. That's not good manners anymore to, to talk about, hey, are you religious? Did you grow up in the church? What do you believe about God? You should come with me to RUF. You should come with me to church one time. Or just to have this conversation. See, he just, before we even attempt, he says, you have no agency. Are you kidding me? That's going to backfire. But do you believe that Jesus calls you an ambassador and actually plans to work through you? Well, the truth is, and the good news is, is that he does, and he is already so delighted and willing and able to work through you however you are now, wherever you are now, at whatever level of maturity you are now. If all you have is like this Samaritan, a bottle of olive oil and a little bit of money in a purse, which actually was a good bit of money, two days wages, uh, are you willing to deploy it, to use it in real life to bring a difference in someone who desperately needs it? Real quickly, what are some of the things that can keep us from seeing and moving towards others uh, in pity and in mercy? Uh, I think, I mean, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but really not. I think if we were to modernize this parable, what would keep us from this? Our phone. Our phone. The parable would have said, well, the priest and the Levite would have passed by him because their heads were buried in their phones. They were kind of snorting another hit of dopamine from their phones. If that's a problem for you, it is for me. What could we start praying? What heart change could we start to hunger for and ask for the Spirit's help in? Uh, we've already talked about how our own agenda, our own to-do list, our own priorities, our own schedule are huge obstacles to actually slowing down, seeing, and paying attention. We've already talked about how compassion fatigue, but we've also talked about how there's grace that gets us over those speed bumps. Jesus isn't asking you to go love the entire world, just the handful of people that you keep bumping into. Jesus isn't saying sacrifice your major, your agenda, your schedule, your part-time job. The Samaritan had places to be and work to do, and he got back to that. But Jesus is saying, are you willing to make space? Are you willing to be disrupted to pay attention to and love the people that I'm dropping right in front of your path? Just as you would want someone 
that God puts in your path in your moment of need to pay attention to you and to let you matter. Do competing priorities, does you keeping a 4.0 require you to pass by on the other side of obvious needs of those around you? Your roommates clearly need you. They're in a moment of need, but you can't make time for them. You've got to get that A. You can't make time to help out a classmate who clearly needs it because that would take away from, that would threaten you getting the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of a 4.0 or an agenda of comfort. I couldn't possibly go up to a new person and say, I'd love to get to know you. We should grab lunch one time because then I'd feel uncomfortable and I can't feel uncomfortable. I have to feel comfortable. Well, friends, you see how much we need Jesus in our moment of need, in our own spiritual poverty, in our own hesitancy to believe that we have agency, to live by faith, to see and to have pity on others. Do you see how much in a moment of need and helplessness we are right now? And how much we need Jesus to befriend us and to be a neighbor to us, to finance our road to recovery, our road back to loving like him? Boy, do we need him. And boy, is he the neighbor that we need and the neighbor that we see in this passage. The answer to the question of how could you ever begin to have a heart that wants to love like this? How could you ever get to the point where you love mercy? You're hungry for opportunities to give a little piece of your time, your schedule, your resources away to help another person that God blessed you with an opportunity to help. How could you get to that point? It will come when you have been befriended by Jesus, the true neighbor himself. When, when you know that he has seen you in, your, in, in, in spiritual death, you in spiritual poverty, you in an existential knot, you in your confusion, you in your stuckness or addictions or shame, and how he saw you and made eye contact with you and let you matter to him, let your needs matter to him, and he took responsibility for you, even though you didn't deserve it. And he put you as a burden on his back, and he carried you all the way back to restoration. Friends, if you've heard us talk about the life and the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, this is the work that he has done in seeing you in need, stooping down, having pity on you, helping you, hands-on touching you, healing you, that you might be fully renewed and fully restored. When you see how God through Jesus has befriended you as a neighbor and had mercy on you, your heart will become freer and freer and freer and more and more hungry to see other people in need and to, instead of finding more excuses of why they're not your neighbor, why you, they, why you don't need to help them, instead of you having a stingy heart that's always shrinking down the population of people that God is actually calling you to love, instead of you only being interested in people with an awesome personality who are super cool, who make you feel really fun and easy to relate to, you'll find yourself wanting to move towards those who actually need a friend, need a smile, need a ride, 
need help with the test, need someone to go to lunch with. Friends, the gospel, Jesus befriending you, is the doorway to being this kind of friend and this kind of neighbor to other people. Let's pray. Jesus, that is a true story. You you don't just call us to be a better neighbor, to love people better, but you have loved us. You have neighbored us and befriended us, had mercy on us and restored us. And not just so that we would be back on our merry way going down the road, but so that we would, that you through us would begin to show your neighborliness, your friendliness, your mercy to other people in their moments of need because you sent us to be in the same place at the same time to help them. Make this come true, Jesus, for your sake and ours. Amen.